Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 38, Leviticus chapter 25, continued. We're going to continue today in our study of uh, Leviticus chapter 25. And among many principles present in this chapter are ones that every believer needs to pay very close attention to. Because they're the principles of release and redemption. Now, it's in the Torah that the basics and the details about release and redemption are explained. Towards the end of this lesson tonight, we indeed are going to delve into some of the finer detail about these two principles, and I suggest you resist the urge to kind of mentally wander off. I, 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 I doubt any believer would argue that redemption isn't everything for us. But the New Testament also fully expects its readers to already understand the many nuances of these God-ordained ordinances that were so central to Israelite society. Now, we left off last time in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 18 and 19, which taught us that the land, Canaan, which the Lord would turn over to his people would only be productive when they were in it. In 1906, the French, who held much territory in the, in the Middle East at that time, took a census. And the total population of the Holy Lands at that time was fewer than 60,000 souls. It consisted mainly of Bedouin desert wanderers, fishermen along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and on and the shores of uh, the Galilee, some scattered goat and sheep herders, and a handful of farmers. Now, as the Jews started to repopulate this land in earnest after World War I, and then the migration turned into a torrent after World War II, the land started again to produce. Now, I tell you this because this is another of those sorely overlooked principles we'll find in the Bible and one that is totally backed up in the hindsight of history. Okay. The land God set aside for his people prospers only when those who legitimately hold the lease are present. When they are not, the land quickly reverts to what it is in its natural state, dead and unusable. Now, I don't want to venture off into allegory or, or, or metaphor, but compare that reality about the land to the miraculous birth of Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, who would lead to the birth of the nation of Israel in the form of his son, Jacob. Isaac came from a womb, Sarah's, that was dead. It was useless until the Lord declared that it would become the source for a nation of people set apart for himself. In parallel to creating a people set apart for himself, he designated a land to be set apart for him and populated by his people. God would take the land of Canaan away from the wicked Canaanites, turn it over to Israel. When ruled by the Canaanites, it was a spiritually dead place even though it did seem to be full of good pasture land and, and had many fertile, fertile fields. When Jehovah set it apart for himself, and once Israel entered that land of Canaan, God declared that from that moment forward, the land would give up its fruit only for his people. Okay. When they weren't there, it would be dead and useless. When they were there, it would be vital and productive. Now sadly, we are eyewitnesses to the working out of this principle on the negative side. Notice what has happened in Gaza. Beginning with the day it was turned over to the Palestinians a little more than two years ago. What was a critical food growing region for Israel is now a place 
that can't even support its own population. Before Israel won back the Gaza in 1967, it was a desolate, almost completely unpopulated area. Once Jewish settlers moved in, farming began and the desert bloomed. By the time the Jews gave the land back to the Palestinians on August the 15th, 2005, and of course we remember what came a few days later, Katrina, the Jewish farms of Gaza supplied fully one-third of all produce raised in Israel. The place today is well on its way to becoming a wasteland again. I don't care what the UN tries to do or what the U.S. tries to do in aid or how science is capable of increasing productivity of the land. The Gaza began to revert to its natural state of death and uselessness on August the 15th, 2005. This is not some wild prediction on my part. It's already happened. Because it's simply the way that the land set aside for Israel operates because that's how God declared it to be. It's it's a supernatural thing. It can't be defeated. Let's reread a portion of Leviticus 25 to get our bearings tonight. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 25. We're going to just read verses 20 through 34. Leviticus 25, starting at verse 20. Now, if you ask, if we aren't allowed to sow sow seed or harvest what our land produces, what are we going to eat in that seventh year? Then I will order my blessing on you during the sixth year, so that the land produces forth enough produce for all three years. The eighth year you will sow seed, but eat the old stored produce until the ninth year. That is, until the produce of the eighth year comes in, you'll eat the old stored food. Now, the land is not to be sold in perpetuity because the land belongs to me. You're just foreigners, temporary residents with me. Therefore, when you sell your property, you must include the right of redemption. That is, if one of you becomes poor, sells some of his property, his next of kin can come and buy back what his relatives sold. If the seller has no one to redeem it, but becomes rich enough to redeem it himself, He will calculate the number of years the land was sold for, refund the excess to its buyer, and return it to his property. If he hasn't sufficient means to get it back himself, then what he sold will remain in the hands of the buyer until the year of Yovel, Jubilee. In the Jubilee, the buyer will vacate it. The seller will return to his property. Now, if someone sells a dwelling in a walled city, He has one year after the date of sale in which to redeem it. For a full year, he'll have the right of redemption. But if he's not redeemed the dwelling in the walled city within the year, then the title in perpetuity passes to the buyer throughout all his generations. It will not revert in the Jubilee. But houses and villages not surrounded by walls are to be dealt with just like the fields in the countryside. They may be redeemed and then revert in the Jubilee. Now concerning... The cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities that they possess, the Levites are to have a permanent right of redemption. If someone purchases a a, a house from one of the Levites, then the house he sold in the city where he owns property will still revert to him in the Jubilee because the houses in the cities of the Levites are in their tribe's possession among the people of Israel. The fields and the open land around their cities may not be sold because that is their permanent possession. In verse 20, where the subject of the Sabbath year rest for the land arises, we get a most reasonable question that any thinking Israelite would have asked when they heard of this ordinance of God. What are we going to eat in the seventh year? If we can't sow, we can't even gather in a crop. And the Lord's answer is, I will ordain my blessing for you in the sixth year, so that it shall yield the crop sufficient for three years. Now, the word usually translated here as ordain is in Hebrew, sivabah. And it carries with it a dual sense 
of something that's being commanded, but also something that's being sent away. All right. God is commanding nature to give up its bounty and then send it to Israel. Nature has no choice in the matter, but Israel does. They can follow God's command of the Sabbath years and of the year of Jubilee and reap that bounty, or they can ignore it all and not receive the bounty. But in a larger view, refusing to obey this law also means that Israel is breaking the covenant. And the consequence for breaking the covenant is to incur God's curse. Well, in the following verses, we get some more specifics on land tenure and the redemption of property as it's to be practiced in Israelite society. And the thing we must grasp is that the permanent selling of the land is prohibited. In reality, the Hebrews can't sell the land even if they wanted to because it's not theirs. They don't own it. Jehovah owns it. Further, what this is alluding to is that a Hebrew who acquires land from another Hebrew is not actually buying the land. He's but taking over a land lease for a period of time that cannot exceed 50 years. Now, this prohibition against permanent land transfer is really aimed as much as the buyer as it is at the seller. The seller is not even to make a deal that purports to transfer the ownership of the land, and the buyer is not ever to think that he's actually purchased the land itself. The buyer, no matter how rich or powerful, is only a user of that land. And even that just lasts until the next Jubilee year. Now, in verse 23, where God instructs the lands not to be sold beyond reclaim, your Bibles might say, in perpetuity. Now, further, as we discussed, the last half of that verse says why that is the case. Because the land's not yours, it's mine, says God. You guys, you Israelites, you're just folks hanging out with me here. Keep in mind that when the biblical laws use the word sell or sold as regards land, it's just a figure of speech. Okay? It's, just, it's just a common way of speaking. Instead, legally, from a Torah perspective, it, it's just referring to the transfer of a leasehold. Now, the meaning of not selling the land beyond reclaim is that one must allow for the land to be redeemed, to be reclaimed. Okay. This is a provision that both the buyer and the seller have to adhere to. This is not an option. Okay. So when we read of any land transaction regarding land that's part of the Holy Land, land has been set aside for Israel, the right of redemption is included. It's a given. It's automatic. Okay. Now, don't confuse redemption with the Jubilee Law. Okay. Redemption involves money and it involves a third-party redeemer who buys the land back for a price. The third-party redeemer is almost always a family member. And this redeemer family member is duty-bound to redeem that land. It's not an option for him either. Further, the current holder of the land is also duty-bound to accept a properly constructed redemption offer. In other words, if a proper and legal third-party redeemer approaches that current landholder with a proper and legal amount of money as the redemption price, that current owner cannot, by law, refuse to allow the redemption of that property. He has to do it. Now, since it was not contemplated that an original landowner, a landholder rather, would sell the lease simply for business reasons, you know, kind of like owning rental real estate, all right, for profit. Okay. But rather, something would essentially force that original owner to transfer the land to another party. 
Verse 25 starts a series of examples of various situations by which land could be lost. And, and the first one involves a person, that landholder, falling on hard times. He's hit a low time. He's financially in a bad way. And the result is he says he has to sell a piece of land. Now this can either be that he needs the money for some unexpected and critical reason, or more usually, he can't pay a debt that he owes to someone, and so that debt holder takes the land in payment. Therefore, a close relative, usually the closest relative, who has the ability and the means to come up with the required money, is obligated by the Torah to redeem the land in the name of the family member who lost it. And to be clear, that redeeming family member doesn't get to keep the land for himself. He doesn't even get to hold it until the property stricken, uh, rather, until the poverty-stricken family member is somehow able to come up with the needed funds to pay him back. The redeemer pays the price. The poor person gets the benefit of receiving the land back. Verse 26 gives us a second example. Here's a situation in which a person who's lost his land has no one in his family that has the means to redeem it for him. Either he has no close relatives at all, or none of his relatives is able to come up with the needed money. However, if after losing the land, that person himself now recovers financially and produces enough funds to meet that redemption price, then that new landholder has to give it back to him, sell it back to him. Further, the method of determining the redemption price is that the new owner must subtract from the price that he had paid a reasonable amount for the time he got use of the land. I'll give you an example. A man owes a debt of $500. He can't pay it. The holder of the debt forecloses on the man's land. A reasonable calculation shows that the crops that can be raised on the land are worth $100 a year. Three years later, the man who lost the land is financially better off and he, now he has the means to reclaim it. Since the original debt was 500 and since that new owner got three years of crops as benefit from holding the land, which amounts to $300 worth of benefits, then the redemption price is only $200. $500 debt, $300 from the crops that were raised on the land, leaves $200 left to repay. Now, it wasn't always quite that simple, but that's basically the way it was intended to work. Now, next, the use of the Jubilee year provisions is injected. And it says that if a man who lost his land cannot ever come up with the money himself to redeem back his own land, and if he has no kinsman to redeem that land for him, then he has no choice but to wait until the Jubilee year when he'll finally get it back. In the Jubilee year, the new holder of the land must release it back to the man who lost it at absolutely no cost. There is no price. The effect of the Jubilee return of property is a full and complete release. The effect of buying the property back at a price is called a redemption. Release and redemption, though they're kind of similar, are really two different processes. So in verse 29, we get a third example of how a piece of property can be transferred from the original owner. What if a man doesn't have a piece of land, but instead he has a house inside of a walled city? Perhaps he's a merchant. He's a craftsman. He's not a farmer. He's not a herder. The law in this case is that he has only one year if he transfers ownership of his house to another, whether by selling it for some reason or losing it, due to indebtedness, to redeem it. After one year, the new owner has no obligations to the old owner. The house is lost forever. 
and the arrival of the Jubilee year does not return that house to the original owner. So we see a rather stark difference between the treatment of a dwelling place versus land when it comes to release and redemption. In verse 31 we see that houses that are not inside walled cities but are instead just located in some outlying villages are to be treated just like they were land. That is, those same rules applied to houses that were located outside of walled cities as it does to land. If someone loses a house that's located outside of a walled city, the period to redeem it never expires. Further, the village house must be returned to the former owner in the year of Jubilee. The idea is that invariably a person with a house in a village has a piece of land to go with it. It's almost unheard of to have one without the other. And usually even if that person was a craftsman, some amount of food was grown on a small plot of land for himself. Now that wasn't always the case, but that was generally the case. Recall now that when the Israelites finally entered the land of Canaan after leaving Egypt, and of course, as of this point in Leviticus, they've not entered yet the land of Canaan. This is talking about a future time for them. There was going to be a land allotment made to each tribe. But there was one Israelite tribe that would not get a territory of its own. The tribe of Levi. As they were set apart from Israel to be God's special servants, his priests, the earthly equivalent in some manner of speaking of God's heavenly angels, the Levites instead were to receive cities located in each and every one of the twelve territories that belonged to the tribes. Now, further, a small amount of land that was attached to each of those cities was included in the deal. Now, some of the 48 cities that the Levites lived in as theirs were apparently walled cities. And whereas all the other Israelites would permanently lose their homes within those walled cities, remember, if not redeemed within a year, no such limit was placed on the houses of the Levites. Further, their walled city house had to be returned upon the year of Jubilee. And then verse 34 gives us the provisions for something most homeowners are pretty familiar with. Here it states that a Levite can't ever lose his land, not even due to indebtedness. That is, whoever loans money to a Levite is taking the full risk upon himself because he can't foreclose on that Levite's land. Thus, we have the principle of homesteading. Okay. Homesteading generally protects one from losing their home except for default on the home mortgage. Okay. A homesteaded house can't be taken from you to satisfy a judgment arising from some other debt or your act of negligence or whatever. It cannot be taken from you due to bankruptcy provided you maintain your mortgage payments. Okay. Levites, as God's servants, could never lose their inheritance, which was those cities. Let's read a little more of Leviticus. Leviticus 35, and we're going to take it to the end. Now, if a member of your people has become poor so that he can't support himself among you, you're to assist him as you would a foreigner or a temporary resident so that he can continue living with you. Don't charge him interest or otherwise profit from him, but fear your God so that your brother can continue living with you. Do not take interest when you loan him money or take profit when you sell him food. I'm Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt in order to give you the land of the Canaanites and be your God. If a member of your people has become poor among you and sells himself to you, don't make him do the work of a slave. Rather, you're to treat him like an employee or a tenant. He will work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he will leave you, he and his children with him, and return to his own family and regain possession of his ancestral lands. For they are my slaves, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, they're not to be sold as slaves. Don't treat him harshly. Fear your God. Now, concerning the men and women you have as slaves, 
You are to buy men and women slaves from the nations who surround you. You may also buy the children of foreigners living with you and members of their families born in your land. You may own these. You may also bequeath them to your children to own. From these groups you may take your slaves forever, but as far as your brothers, the people of Israel, are concerned, you're not to treat each other harshly. Now, if a foreigner living with you has grown rich, and a member of your people has become poor, and he sells himself to this foreigner living with you, or to a member of that foreigner's family, he can be redeemed after he's been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any near relative of his may redeem him, or if he becomes rich, he can redeem himself. He will calculate with the person who brought him, bought him the time from the year he sold himself to the year of Jubilee. And the amount to be paid will be according to the number of years in his time an employee's wage. If many years remain, according to them, will he refund that amount for his redemption from the amount he was bought for? If there remain only a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he'll calculate with him. According to his years, will he refund the amount for his redemption? He will be like a worker, hired year by year. You will see to it that he's not treated harshly. If he has not been redeemed by any of these procedures, nevertheless, he will go free at the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For to me, the people of Israelites of Israel are slaves. They're my slaves, who I bought out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai, your God. Well, up to now, we've dealt more with, rede- with redemption and the Jubilee year release of real property. This section now changes course and it deals with human property. People. People who have become bond servants or maybe slaves. And it walks us through a couple of stages of financial difficulties that people found themselves in in the biblical era that led to their becoming slaves or bond servants. Now starting in verse 35 the situation is that a person described as a kinsman has become poor and he owes a debt to somebody. And moreover, this particular kinsman is somewhat like a resident alien. In the sense that because resident aliens were not permitted to hold land in Israel, they were workers who could only work for wages. So what we have here is the case of a peasant Hebrew who simply works for wages. He's an employee. He has no land to work and grow food upon. Well, the word used for kinsman in this instance is in Hebrew, ach, A-C-H, ach, which literally means brother. But ach is also a common word that indicates countryman. So the idea is that while this poor person might be a close relative, he could also just be a brother Israelite. And all Israelites are brothers to one another. So the instruction here is that one Israelite is not to charge another Israelite interest on either money or provisions, at least when the borrower must borrow because he's poor and he has no other choice to survive. Now starting in verse 39... The financial situation of the poor person has declined even further. He has borrowed the money at no interest, but he's not even able to pay that back. And the result is that this poor person now becomes an indentured servant. That is, he's assigned to the person who loaned him the money until such time that that debt is paid off by means of his labor. Now, usually that meant that the poor person and his family lived on the estate of the one who loaned him the money. And the idea is that this indebted person does not become a slave. He's not been purchased, therefore he's not property. Rather, he's more like an employee. He's an employee that's bound. He must work for that creditor and that creditor alone. However, the longest period of time 
that poor person can remain indebted and bonded to his master is until the year of Jubilee arrives. At which point that indentured servant must be released, whatever remains of his debt cancelled. Further, the master cannot let the male go, but keep his wife and children. The whole family has to be released permanently. Now, the principle behind this law is laid down in verse 42. Very basic. All Israelites belong to God. He redeemed them. He purchased their freedom from slavery when he took them out of the hand of Egypt. So, another underlying principle is that no redeemed person can be another's slave. And every Israelite was redeemed. The effect of this law is that no Israelite can own a Hebrew slave. Understand, a bondservant is not a slave. A bondservant is not property. He's like an exclusive employee. That said, verses 44 through 46 make it clear that Hebrews can indeed own slaves. It's just that those slaves have to be foreigners. Non-Israelites. People from other nations. So according to the law, a Hebrew can buy a foreigner as a slave, and if that foreigner has children, then those children are also their slaves. Not only that, but because slaves are indeed property, just like land or furniture, slaves can be handed down from one generation of a Hebrew family to the next. No provision is made in the law for a foreign slave to be redeemed. They're stuck without hope. Now let me emphasize that principle so that it's very clear. The only people who could be redeemed and thus freed from their debts were those who were under the covenant God made with Israel. That's it. Foreigners who wanted to be part of Israel were allowed to become part of Israel and thus were placed under the provisions of that covenant. Foreigners who did not want to become part of Israel were outside of the provisions of those covenants. That same principle applies to salvation, folks. We're saved under the provisions of the covenants God made with Israel. And part of that provision is for a saving Messiah. Thus, in Romans 11, we have St. Paul's conclusion that foreigners who want to be saved must be grafted in. They must be grafted in to what? Israel's covenants. Because it's only within those covenants where the provisions for God's salvation of a human being exists. See, verse 49 now illustrates another situation. A well-to-do foreigner who lives among Israel loans money to a Hebrew. And the Hebrew can't pay it back. And by law, that Hebrew becomes a bondservant to the foreigner. However, while a Hebrew can own a foreign slave, a foreigner living among Israel can't own a Hebrew slave. Further, it falls to the family member of the Hebrew debtor to redeem him from this bondservant status that he has to a foreigner. Or alternately, if somehow this bondservant would prosper on his own, he's allowed to buy to redeem himself. Now, the remainder of the chapter shows how the redemption price for the bondservant is to be calculated, and we're not going to go over it because it works exactly the same as if a piece of land was being redeemed. Same principle. Now, let me state at this point that while the duty of a kinsman to redeem a person's land for him was a very important one, the duty of a kinsman to redeem his own family member a person from servitude to a foreigner was an exceptionally high duty. God makes it clear that in principle no Israelite should ever be a servant or a slave to anybody except God. 
and then even by your own free will. Because God's redeemed them. But for an Israelite to be a servant or a slave to a non-Israelite is, is viewed as an abomination. And it's the duty of his family to go to great personal sacrifice if necessary to extract that poor Hebrew from his terrible situation. Okay, let's take a little detour. As you've seen over the last three lessons, it's in Leviticus 25 that we find kind of embedded and entwined within the laws of Jubilee, this concept and the duties of a kinsman redeemer detailed for us. And I suspect many of you immediately recollect that Jesus, Yeshua, is often referred to as what? Our kinsman redeemer. We've heard many sermons about this. Naturally, he's going to be the reason for this detour. In Leviticus 25, we're told that the purpose of a kinsman redeemer is to rescue the land of a family member or a person in the family from being lost to somebody else. That is, somebody in the family, usually due to not being able to pay off a debt, loses some or all of their land or winds up in bond servitude. The method of losing the land is that the land is sold or exchanged to satisfy that indebtedness. Or that person not having any land to sell becomes a bond servant. But the law was that if that situation happened, there was automatically a right of redemption of that land or that person. And in the case of land, either the person who originally owned it could come up with enough money to pay the redemption price and get it back, or a family member paid off the debt for him. In the case of a person who became a bondservant, he could come up with the money for himself and purchase his own freedom. Or more often, a family member paid the price on his behalf. In fact, it was the duty of a family member to do that. So the general rule was that the closest family member was first in line to accomplish the redemption. If that one didn't have the means, then the duty went to the next closest family member. He didn't have the means, then the next closest family member was on the hook, and so on and so on. Now, a key principle of this system was that the kinsman redeemer didn't get to keep the land. He redeemed for his family member, nor if that family member became a bondservant, did that family member now become the kinsman redeemer's bondservant. That said, out of gratitude, a person could offer to stay under the authority of the one who redeemed him. It was his option. So the kinsman redeemer paid the price of the debt that was owed, but the family member who lost the land or his own personal freedom got the benefit of it all. The kinsman redeemer did not realize any personal benefit at all from this act of kindness and duty. Now, although we haven't discussed it yet, that was not the only aspect of being a kinsman redeemer. Another purpose of a kinsman redeemer was to act as one who avenged the wrongful death of a family member. That is, if somebody in, the, in a family was killed at the hands of another, whether accidental or premeditated, whether in the heat of battle, didn't matter, a close family member was duty-bound to hunt down and take the life of the responsible party. In fact, the primary purpose of all those Levite cities in Israel designated as sanctuaries or refuges was to provide a safe haven from a kinsman redeemer that was bent on revenge. Now, while we're not going to get into all the nuances of the cities of sanctuary, let me just state that a premeditated murderer did not typically get protected by running off to a sanctuary city. There was a board of elders in each city that determined whether to let a person who was fleeing to come into their place of sanctuary or not. Usually someone who'd committed a criminal act that led to loss of life wasn't even permitted sanctuary. It was more normal than it would be for an unintentional act. You know, maybe two men were fighting and in the heat of the moment, one killed the other. So sanctuary wasn't so much about guilt or innocence per se 
as it was about protecting someone from the customary vengeance of the kinsman redeemer. Now there's even another aspect of a kinsman redeemer we need to be aware of. It was that a male family member was to marry a female family member who had lost her husband to death. If she had not yet born a son, an heir for her now deceased husband. The idea was that by the kinsman redeemer marrying her, she would eventually get pregnant, have a son, and the son would carry on in the name of her deceased husband. And therefore, her husband's name would continue and his line wouldn't be ended. Now, the first type of kinsman redeemer that we talked about, the type who buys back land for a family member, is called in Hebrew a goel. G-O-E-L, goel. The second type of kinsman redeemer, the type who avenges the death of a family member, is called in Hebrew a goel hadam, or more literally, a blood avenger. The third type of kinsman redeemer, the type who marries the sonless widow in order for her to produce a son and carry on the deceased father's line, is also called a guail. Now, before we start connecting some of these dots, let's also understand the meaning of the term kinsman. There are several Hebrew words that are translated into the English word Kinsmen, but they all denote something slightly different. The most frequent Hebrew word that's translated as kinsman is ach, most literally just meaning brother. A brother, though, can mean a male sibling. It can mean even a close relative. It can even indicate a brother-like relationship with somebody. Someone who perhaps isn't actually related by blood, but whom that person is very close Usually when ah is used, though, it it means a a close relative. Another Hebrew word for kinsman is karob. Karob. And literally, karob means near. Near, like in proximity. But in the context of a family, it means a near relative. Yet another common Hebrew word for kinsman is modah. And it usually means an intimate friend who's as close as a brother. Now, in the Bible, context is everything. So, kinsman can mean anything from a member of your immediate family, like literally your brother, to a member of your extended family, like a cousin, simply a member of your tribe. In its broadest sense, it can also indicate any member of the nation of Israel. But it doesn't extend any further than that. That's where it ends. From a physical and a national sense, no foreigner, no resident alien can be designated as a kinsman of an Israelite. For instance, even if an Israelite had a very close friend who was, say, an Egyptian or a Canaanite, that friend would never be considered a kinsman for any legal purpose. So in any of these cases involving redemption that I've given to you, Generally, the term kinsman indicates that there was a blood relationship with the blood being Israelite blood. Now, some of you might say, but wait a minute, a foreigner can become a full-fledged Israelite, and that is true. But once a foreigner becomes an Israelite, he's no longer a foreigner. Okay? Once that foreigner gives his allegiance to Israel, Jacob is considered to be his father too. For all legal purposes. Isn't that good news? So let's be clear. Biblically speaking, a kinsman can only be within one's own nation. It's a very defined people group. Therefore, when we get all these rules and ordinances in the Bible about kinsmen and kinsmen redeemers, it's all about relationships among the Israelites, not foreigners. They're excluded. Now, little test. Anybody tell me how many times in the New Testament we have Yeshua referred to as our kinsman redeemer? Two? Five? Nine? Try zero. He is indeed called our redemption, 
He is called our Redeemer, but nowhere in the New Testament is he called our kinsman Redeemer. Does that make you squirm just a little bit? Good. Because if you still think that the Bible starts at the book of Matthew for Christians and that the Old Testament is irrelevant to you, that Jesus nailed it to the cross, then you got a problem. Because the New Testament never labels him as the kinsman redeemer. So where does this idea or doctrine come from? This idea that Yeshua, our Messiah, is our kinsman redeemer. From the Old Testament. See, there are 33 references to a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, and half of them refer, refer to the future Messiah. But you'll only find it in the Old Testament. Of course, the definition and duty of a kinsman redeemer is fully set out in Leviticus 25, just like we've been studying. So if the law is dead and gone... Why is it that most evangelical preachers, the most adamant the law has been replaced by grace folks, insist that the Levitical law of the kinsman redeemer applies to Jesus? How can we just love to turn our Bibles to the supposedly obsolete book of Ruth when we want to understand the purposes of a kinsman redeemer and apply it to our New Testament as Messiah? Obviously, I'm being a little sarcastic. Yes, of course Yeshua is our kinsman redeemer. But we can only know that from Old Testament principles. Primarily from the Torah. So let's just see how Yeshua is our kinsman redeemer based on Torah principles, based on the law. Listen to Yeshua's own words in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What does that sound like? Of course, it's exactly what we've been studying here in Leviticus. He speaks of release, setting free those who are downtrodden, proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord. The favorable year of the Lord is just an idiom for jubilee, common idiom. Yeshua is speaking about the principles of Jubilee and about the purpose of a kinsman redeemer, a Gwail. Not only that, but as I told you in the last told you that at least half of the New Testament is but Old Testament quotes. And the one in Luke that I just read to you is actually Jesus simply quoting Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. I'll read that to you. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. See where we get this stuff from? See, this aspect of the kinsman redeemer, the one who brings release and sets the downtrodden free is the one we Gentile Christians think most about. We were in bondage to evil and sin. We have no out but to have a kinsman redeemer. More, we were foreigners. We were outside of Israel. We were excluded from their covenants. Thus, we have seen in Leviticus 25, verses 44 through 46, that foreigners, those outside of Israel, could be slaves in perpetuity. Even their descendants could be slaves with no hope of redemption. Let me say it again because this principle is central to salvation as is the need for blood to atone for sin. Foreigners, those who wish to remain outside of Israel, have no provision of redemption available to them. Next we learn, have learned that the kinsman redeemer has to have the means to redeem. He can't just want to. He has to be able to pay the full redemption price. No discounts. A good enough person may want to redeem with all of his heart. 
He may want to provide that redemption price to free his brother, but often he simply couldn't because he didn't have the means. Debt holders didn't accept IOUs from kinsmen redeemers. They wanted the price. They wanted to pay him full. God doesn't accept IOUs either. The problem for mankind was, and is, that the debt we owe to God due to our sin is death. It's our own death. That's what we owe him. Either we pay that debt by our own death, or a kinsman redeemer has to pay it for us. But that's the debt that has to be paid. The kinsman redeemer follows the pattern of substitution. The pattern of substitution is exhibited for us in animal sacrifices that forms the whole basis of the Levitical sacrificial system. But it had to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be innocent. No guilty party could be the sacrifice. And it had to be without sin. Mankind had waited 4,000 years for a kinsman redeemer, a third party, who could qualify A, to be a kinsman, and B, have the means to pay that full price. No animal could ever be a kinsman to a human, could it? So while an animal could make atonement and stave off God's wrath temporarily, an animal could never be a kinsman for a human. And yet, what human was 100% sin-free? Both in nature and indeed, Yeshua is the one. He was the one and only Redeemer who had the qualifications, he had the means, and he had the will to be our kinsman redeemer. We're going to explore this all a little further next week.